Hey, today we're starting a new series called Dwell. It's a four-part series, and I get the privilege of doing the first part. And I want to start off this, this series by telling you a story. Um, you know how storms build character? What this, you heard me say this before, but I believe that storms also reveal character. And it brings out the best in us, and at the same time, for some of us, maybe for most of us, it brings out the worst. And today I want to share a story with you of how I think this pandemic has brought the worst out of me. You see, during this pandemic, I've been able to leave the house maybe a few times to go for walks or just go to the grocery store. And when I do, every once in a while, I'll come across these people that I would consider to be insensitive. Whether if it's people who aren't wearing face masks, people who are not honoring the six foot rule, one time I was at Costco and there was a person who was going through every single watermelon, picking it up, sniffing it, knocking on it, putting it down, picking up another one. And I swear he went through every single watermelon. And after he found the favorite one, I was left with the choice of picking one that was touched by this person. And I got really, really uncomfortable. When I'm on social media, I read posts by some people, some people I consider friends, who would say insensitive things like, yeah, I heard that the rate of death, the mortality rate of COVID-19 is less than the flu. So let's just go back to work and whoever dies, let them die. Then I would pause for a moment and, and think to myself, really, that's how we're gonna treat our neighbors? And after reading that, I thought, man, how insensitive is this world? I don't feel safe in this world anymore. And then I had a follow-up thought, which sounded like this. If I had more control over this world, if I had more authority to tell people who can stay in and who could leave the house, if I had more power, this world would be a safer place. And it's at that point that I realized, oh my goodness, I have this hunger for control. I, I need to stop thinking like this. And so immediately I started to pray. I started asking God, would you please remove these evil thoughts from my mind? And then I started to realize that my prayers started to sound evil. I started asking God to control those people. I asked God, would you teach that person a lesson? I asked God, would you make sure that that person doesn't leave the house? So like I said, this pandemic, it's brought out the worst in me. And as I was starting to feel really bad about myself, I started to think, I can't be alone in feeling this way. As I was telling that story, some of you were saying, yeah, honestly, I kind of felt that too. And so I'm starting to realize that this isn't probably just a COTS problem. It's probably a human condition. It's something that we all share. It's a problem that we all struggle with. We all feel like if we had more control over this world, if we had more control and authority over the people who are living around us, this world would be a safer place. So as I started looking deeper into this, this is what I discovered, and I think we should all know this, that the root of all religion is our desire for control. So let me explain what I meant by that. You see, sometime in our lives, for some of us earlier in life, for other people later in life, we all discover that the world we live in right now is chaotic and it's actually really dangerous. So as we live our lives, we discover a few things about this world. That this world is filled with destruction and violence. That the people around us tend to hurt us by accident or on purpose. We also discover that the world is filled with injustice. That people are not treated equally because of their race, their gender, their sexuality, whatever the case may be, our social economic status. And then eventually we also discover that the world is scarce of resources, that the stuff that we have around us is limited. 
So as soon as we come to grips with the fact that we live in a world that's dangerous, we eventually move to a state of fear. You start asking questions like, I'm so afraid. Uh, will I be safe from, from this disease? Are my kids safe from this disease? Is it safe to send my kids back to school? Will my kids have a bright future? Will I have enough food? Do I still have a job? Will I be this uncomfortable for the rest of my life? How long will I live? But then, soon after the fear stage, we naturally move to the stage of control. And so now that you know that the world is dangerous and that you're afraid, you try your best to make the world a safer place, at least for you and your family. So we take things from other people so that we have enough to eat. Or if you don't want to break any laws or any rules, you try to follow the system that you're given, but you try to take advantage of it so you have the edge on it. Or you end up hoarding everything you have so that you know you can survive longer. But as you can see from this list, your actions of trying to create a safer world for you is making the world even more dangerous and this cycle keeps on going over and over and over again. And so you realize that the cycle doesn't work. And so you turn to God. I mean, maybe he has the power to make this world a safer place for us and our children. And so religion at its core is nothing more than a system that's predicated on fear. This is why people would throw a virgin to a volcano to appease the gods so that the gods could give the tribe a little more crops this year so the harvest would be better. There's a story in the Bible in the book of 1 Kings about a group of people who are prophets of a god named Baal who start calling on their god to light an altar on fire. And when he, they realized that their calling of their god wasn't really working, they start shouting at God so that he, they could get Baal to light this altar on fire. And when that didn't work, they started cutting themselves. It says they started slashing themselves and the blood was dripping out of their bodies so that they could get this god Baal to light the altar on fire. They're trying to control their god to do the things that they want done on earth that they can't control. Now, you might be thinking, wow, these guys are very barbaric. They're very superstitious. I can't believe they would do such a thing. And I thought the same thing too. But in the past two months, I started thinking, are Christians any different? Am I any better than these people? And the answer is no. You see, in response to fear, in response to trying to make this world a safer place, we bargain with God all the time. We say things like, hey, I'll go to church every Sunday if you would just do this. I'm gonna serve more. I'm gonna read the Bible more. I'll pray more. So God, would you please heal certain people? Maybe you've gone to a job interview and after that, you weren't quite sure if you're gonna get the job or not. And so you start making a deal with God. God, I'm gonna be on my best behavior. I'll stop using bad words if you would just give me this job. This is our attempt at controlling God who has the ability to control the world. In other words, we've created a, a transactional type of relationship with God. And that's what religion is. A religion is basically a transactional relationship with the one who can do things that we can't do. But we never admit to that. We never say we're trying to control God. So maybe another way of defining religion is it's the cloak, it's the covering we put over our desire to control God with religious language. Still not convinced? Well, there's four different ways that we actually try to control God. Let me go over each one and maybe you could find one that fits your way of controlling God. The first is called life under God. This is for those of you who say that God has given you rules and laws and rituals and moral codes and you try to follow them as much as you can because you think that if you do these things right, then God is gonna bless you. God's gonna give you something that, that you couldn't get if it wasn't for you doing these things. 
if something bad happened to you and then you said to God, but God, I've been generous with my money all this time. How could you let this happen to me? You see, in that statement, you are implying that you doing certain things makes God owe you a certain action. You're living your life under God so that you have control over God. The second posture is called life above God. For those of you who don't like to sugarcoat things and even hide from the fact that you're trying to control God, you are just open about telling God what to do. You say, God, I demand that you do this for me. For those of you who are convinced that every word that you pray, every request you make from God, that God is eager to fall in line with what you want for this world, that's the category they fall into. The third posture is called life from God, and this is probably the most popular one in our world today. Basically, you believe that God exists to meet your needs. And if God stops giving you things, you even question why God exists in the first place. You've asked God over and over and over again to give you something, and if He doesn't give it to you, then you start wondering, well, why do we even pray? Because the very purpose of the existence of prayer and God is to make sure that you have what you want and what you need. Now, sociologists have a term for this. It's called MTD, Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. And this seems to be the most common postures amongst youth. They believe that God exists to either give you stuff or make you feel better. So for example, the worship team comes up and they start playing music and then they start playing your favorite song. And so you stand up and you raise your hand and you're in this moment of worship, but then you don't feel good. You don't feel that, that, that good feeling when you usually worship. And so when the band leaves the stage, you look at everybody and say, I don't think that was a good worship set. I didn't feel God. That is life from God. You think that God exists to make sure that He covers all your bases for you. Now the final posture is called life for God. What this means is that you do your best to align your mission with God's mission. If God wants you to take care of the poor, you're right there at the homeless shelter. If God wants you to stand up for people who are treated unjustly, you're right there with them protesting. But for some reason you feel that because you're aligned with God, that He will protect you no matter what. He'll keep your world safe because you are in line with what God wants you to do. Now the problem with this is that the one who was most in line with God's mission would, was Jesus and He ended up getting crucified. And so when it comes to religion, everybody falls into one of these four categories. And Jesus had something to say about that. Now I know that we've recently looked at Luke chapter 15, but I want to bring our attention back to the prodigal son because in that parable, Jesus describes for us what posture God really wants us to have with him. Now in this story, there's a father figure and then there's two sons, the younger and the older. First, the younger one goes up to the dad and says, dad, I just want what's mine and he takes off. Now here, the son, the younger son, he represents life from God. He says, I know what you exist for, Dad. You exist to give me my stuff. Just give me my stuff so I could go and live my life. He's treating his dad as a genie, as an ATM machine, just there so that he could get what he wants. But then he also represents life above God because he's basically directly telling his father what he wants from him. So after the son goes and spends everything that was given to him, he realizes that he made a huge mistake. So he comes back and his father welcomes him back home. But then we meet the older brother. Once the older brother finds out that his younger brother is back home, listen to what he says to his dad. Verse 29, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. The older brother here represents life under God. He did everything that was required of him to do. He was living his moral life. He did everything that was commanded of him. 
and he thought he deserved something in return for it. But did you notice that he also represents the posture of life for God? He basically says, my mission was according to what you wanted me to do, so I demand something in return for it. And now, in response to these two boys, the father makes an amazing declaration. Verse 31, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. He basically says, all that matters to me is that you are with me. The father says to the older son, I appreciate your obedience. And yes, everything I have belongs to you. But the most important thing to me is your presence. Yes, your younger brother, yeah, he went out of line. Yes, we'll do something about that later. But right now, I'm just celebrating that he is back with me. So for those of you who've heard in the past that Christianity is not a religion, but it's a relationship. You have no idea how profound that statement is. You see, Christianity and all religion is not a system in which God has given us so that we could somehow manipulate Him to giving us a safer world. He's saying that God is not a means to an end. So the question is this, what are we supposed to do with the world of fear that we live in right now? Because there's this cycle, and in this cycle, danger leads to fear, fear leads to control, and control leads right back to danger, and there's this continual cycle. Is there a way that we could break free from this system? And the answer is yes. God gives us a way out of this cycle. But it all starts with dwelling with God first. You see, when you're dwelling with God, this is what happens. So from danger, you go to fear. But instead of going from fear to control, you go from fear to surrender. What's that? So let me try to give you an example of that. So for a couple of years now, my son has had this bad relationship with thunderstorms. He hates the loud sound. So luckily we live in Los Angeles where it doesn't rain as much, but when it does, he runs to his room, onto his bed and under his blanket, and he starts to cry. Now as a father, I wish I could just demand the clouds to go away and make the storm stop, but I can't. So I did what I thought I should, which is I went to his bed, I sat next to him and I told him it's okay, daddy's here. Now that didn't make him any less scared. So I would repeat it again. It's okay, daddy's here. And then he would say, make it go away, make it go away. And then I would hold him tighter and I would say, it's okay, daddy's here. We'll sit through this together. And with tears in his eyes, he would look at me and confess to me, daddy, I'm scared. And he'll tuck his head back into my lap and then I'll hold him even tighter. So for the first few minutes of his fear, he was demanding and even tried to coerce me in making the storm go away, which I don't have control to do that. But for the later parts of his fear, he surrendered that fear to me and came to terms with the fact that I'm gonna sit here with him and there's nothing that he can do or the storm can do that will pull me away from him. And that led him to feeling a little less scared and then a little less scared after that. You see, through the fear we're going through right now, God is saying, I want to dwell with you. Through the storm that you're in right now, I am with you and I will never leave you. But in response, he's also asking, would you please dwell with me? And who knows, maybe you'll experience this peace that surpasses all understanding. So brothers and sisters, may we surrender the control that we want over the fears in our lives and start dwelling with God. And may God continually remind you that He is always with you, that He will never leave your side. And may we all experience heaven together. God bless you.